from Washington, D.C. for this special Naked Neuroscience podcast in partnership with the International Neuroethics Society and the Wellcome Trust, where we'll be taking a journey into the future to explore how brain research will shape a future society. In the last episode, we welcomed in the era of the brain. We discussed the colossal cash injections that will allow us to peer into the human brain as never before. And we started to discuss how, as a society and as scientists, we should best make use of the data that comes out. In this episode, we meet Brian, the robot who's helping the elderly remember to eat. Hi, my name is Brian. You look very nice today. Please join me for lunch. Today's menu includes some pasta, apple slices and water. And Tangi, who encourages people to get together to play memory-boosting games. Congratulations, you have won bingo. Great job. And we discuss the ethics of robots in warfare. People are concerned about who is responsible if, for instance, in the context of warfare, one of the uh, robotics that's being used is out of control or is doing something that it wasn't planned to do because we've all had the experience of computers going wrong, badly wrong. All to come. First up, with a growing elderly population whose cognitive abilities are declining, could robots help jog memories and support elderly people in their daily activities, whilst also keeping them socially active? I met Goldie Nijet. She's director of the Institute for Robotics and Mechatronics at Toronto University. She spoke at the Society's evening public lecture on how robots can help the elderly. The idea is that we're trying to design um, socially assistive robots that can help the elderly. Robot can engage people in recreational activities, memory games, as well as help them with activities of daily living that they may find difficult to do on their own. And these are 3D walking, talking robots that can also emotionally and socially engage with the elderly. Right, so the idea is to have natural communication between a robot and a person. So just like we display um, expressions through our face and body and through what we say, the robots do exactly the same thing and they, they're embodied in their environment so that you know, they have a better engagement tool with people so the person can be engaged looking at a physical 3D robot in front of them. Do they look a little bit like a person or more like a robot? So are you almost tricking the elderly into thinking that they're interacting with a person? So they all look very robotic. So you can actually see the metal, the wire, the plastic and and that's done on purpose and even with the Brian robot for example when it moves its arms you can hear the motors there's noise and that's all done because we want to make sure that people understand these are robots they're interacting with we're not trying to fool them into thinking that these are people and we're now going to hear a, a little sample of the type of prompting and encouragement that the robot Brian can give whilst trying to um, help the elderly remember to eat when they've got Alzheimer's that's a good helping of food you have there. Please take a bite. 
so Brian uh, prompts a person through the steps of eating by encouraging them to, for example, you know, pick up their uh, utensil, bring the food to their mouth, tells jokes during that time. And the idea is that, you know, during the interaction, the robot is happy when the person's doing it. It displays um, facial expressions, happy, big smile, excited voice, and gestures, body language, like it gets excited, does a little dance when the person um, eats properly. And at the same extent, we also do a few different expressions where the robot will get sad if a person gets disengaged in eating. So if they get distracted and look away, the robot tries to re-engage them by getting sad that they're not interacting with it anymore. And so kind of that's the idea of the, you know how we display expressions too when a person's interacting with us. The robot uses that to keep a person engaged in eating. Some people with Alzheimer's might not remember how to make a meal, and so you've developed Casper to help with that. Yes, so Casper, and um, the idea is that when it's mealtime, for example, Casper can go find a person, bring them to the kitchen, and really prompt them through the steps and make it a fun activity, you know, recipe finding what they want to make, um, and then go through the steps and show videos of how to exactly make uh, the food, and then so that the person will enjoy eating the food after, and they have some, you know, encouragement to do so. And then Tangi um, is a robot that assists with playing bingo. Yeah, so Tangi is a group uh, robot. So it's, the idea is that it facilitates, you know, uh, a few people, you know, five to ten uh, individuals playing a bingo game. And the robot uh, provides encouragement, calls out the bingo numbers, um, help if, you know, someone forgot to mark, a, for example, a bingo number. B12 was previously called. Please mark this number on your card. Wow, you are getting close to having bingo and then again celebrates with a person when they win bingo. And how do the elderly react to these robots? I mean, we're talking about a generation that weren't brought up with computers. So how, how do they react? Do they really engage with the robot? The robot engagement or interaction with a person is very natural. The person doesn't have to learn how to use the robot, for example, right? It's pretty much the same way we interact with a person, another person. So the idea here is that the robot is engaging and displays um, expressions and behaviors similar to how we do. So that learning curve is gone. So this whole idea idea of using technology that you've never used before, the ease of use of the robot promotes its acceptance. So one part of the reason for studying this is it to try and replace carers, human social interaction, humans that would normally help and support these activities for the elderly. And, and is that ethical? That's a very good question. So robots are being designed, in our case, um, to help uh, the healthcare professionals. So we, we do actually a lot of our interactions is with the healthcare professionals themselves to find out what their needs and wants are. And really we're trying to design robots as assistants or tools that they can use so they can focus their attention on, you know, high level tasks that they need to do and only they can do and the robot can supplement them. A lot of um, the jobs, there's a lot of turnover rates because, you know, people go in, they're very overwhelmed and they leave the job. So the idea is that we, we, we help use the robots to minimize stress and the workload that they have, um, especially since we have this growing population of elderly people, right? And we need to take care of them, find a way. So we want to assist both the elderly individuals, right, to benefit, but as well as the healthcare professionals in, you know, helping them do some of these repetitive tasks um, that the robot could take over for them. And at the moment, how much would Casper cost? So the, I should mention they're all kind of at the research and development stage. So um, the good thing about our robots is that we're trying to use off-the-shelf components, right? So, so a lot of the sensors can just be easily purchased and integrated. So we've kept the costs down in, in designing and developing these robots. So to, to build something like Casper or Brian has cost us maybe five to $10,000 to do. Um, and the idea is that, you know, as mass production happens of these robots, we can keep the costs affordable so that people can buy them.
And I'm now going to bring in Barbara, who is the president of the International Neuroethics Society. Barbara, can you tell us a little bit about some of the ethical issues that were raised during the discussion this evening? Yes, I mean, one reason we held this was because obviously the robotics technology and everything is taking off. There's a lot of important issues to do with society. We want to make sure everything is for the benefit of society within the International Neuroethics Society. And we want to look at the impact that these new technologies will have on people. So, Goldie, you mentioned that one of your robots, your 3D robots, cost about $10,000 to produce at the moment, which is considerably cheaper than employing a nursing assistant or a care worker for a year. So, Barbara, what are the concerns regarding that? And, and how on earth do you discuss these concerns with policymakers and businesses? Goldie mentioned a few of the aspects that she does in her work to make sure that things are done in, a, in an ethical way in terms of bringing in the carer to discuss what needs to be done with this particular individual so it's more focused on the person themselves. And I think that's what we really need to do with these things is to think of them as aids for people in situations where perhaps they're uh, isn't enough help, and if, if a robot doesn't do it, nobody will do it. But on the other hand, as a society, I mean, how do we want to behave? Do we want to just say, okay, it's fine for robots to do all these things and to leave people to interact with a, a robot, even no matter how good it is, perhaps it's not as good as a human being in terms of their in quality of interaction and, and do they give the same sense of well-being that you might have if you're interacting with a human. So I think as a society we have to think how much do we want to use these techniques to help with situations that we can't deal with in other ways. If you're going into a very dangerous situation when, for instance, they were removing nuclear waste and things like that, you have to be concerned about the health of a human being versus just a normal social interaction that one hopefully would expect in society to get from another person. Goldie, of course, mentioned that it's early stages development, but uh, what was raised tonight, which was very interesting in discussion, raised the ethical issue about vulnerable populations being exposed to robotics because there are issues to do with, as a society, do we find it disturbing that perhaps somebody who is demented doesn't actually realize they're being cared for by a robot or forms unusual attachments to the robot that is unexpected and you know it's some people might feel it's duping the person into behaving in a, in a way that most people might regard as unnatural so there's a lot of ethical issues that that come out of this this type of work as well and finally Goldie I just wondered whether your robots would ever be used in education or child care, for example. Yeah, so we are designing actually social robot search and rescue or other applications where we're trying to use robots really as assistives. Like I mentioned before, the idea is, can robots be used as a tool, right? And can it be used as a training tool, as a tool to help people in dangerous situations where you can have a robot do it for search and rescue, for example, rather than put more human lives at risk. Um, so it's, it's kind of this open an idea of how do you interact with a robot and can you interact with it socially, then the applications kind of become unlimited, right? That you could use it as assistive technology. Barbara? I thought another very important point that Goldie raised was the essentially cognitive training or sometimes it's called brain training in some sense, but trying to improve memory in, in um, older people and patients with dementia. 
And uh, I thought it was very interesting the way the robots had these facial expressions to try to encourage people, and that's a very positive thing. But one maybe has to balance that against the fact that we're now developing games that are used to do the same sorts of things, and people who work in the game in industry know very well how to increase motivation and somebody's getting frustrated, how to bring the level down easily and it might be just easier to have an iPad with a game on it rather than perhaps a complicated robot that's trying to speak to you and, and encourage you to turn a card over. And I, on a related note, I heard recently about um, an autistic boy who forged a friendship with Siri, the artificial agent, so he's got a synthetic voice. His mother claimed kind of helped him to understand his world and his sense of reality and also helped him to galvanise almost a sense of empathy with this synthetic voice. So do you think that there is, um, not just for 3D ro robots, but also 2D robots, this um, extra way of, of helping autistic children, maybe, for example, or, or other types of vulnerable people using robots? There are some very good experiments, uh, actually with avatars, and they show that it helps children learn how to interact with other children so that when autistic children go back into the classroom after they've had some of the training with the avatar, they actually are much better at knowing how they should respond to different situations and interact with children in a more effective way so they're more popular and they fit in better. So yes, these techniques turning out to be very good for special groups that need help with social interaction or the memory, other forms of cognition. And Professor Ronald Arkin, who spoke on the use of robots in the military, was mentioning that something along the lines of 45% of American soldiers admitted that they would go against protocol and actually fire on civilians um, given certain situations, which obviously you can program a computer or a robot not to do that. So, so you could actually, he was arguing that you could decrease the amount of humans and, and specifically civilians that are being killed in warfare. Absolutely. So his idea was the collateral damage and the other damage to civilians, children, would be less. And if that's the case, that'll be fantastic. But obviously it's untried at the moment. That is what his aim is. And I thought that was very good that he's kind of got this moral intention with the robotics to actually make them act in an ethical way, you know, if they identify a school bus or if they identify a hospital, they don't actually damage that building or that bus. People are concerned about who is responsible if, for instance, in the context of warfare, one of the uh, robotics that's being used is out of control or is doing something that it wasn't planned to do because we've all had the experience of computers going wrong, badly wrong. It's important that we are able to identify when there's problems early on and uh, be able to deal with those. Uh, warfare itself is horrible. Uh, people are very concerned about deaths of civilians involved. But it's one thing if at least it's felt that it's necessary and that human beings are involved in making the decisions. But when that is taken away, people get very concerned about, will it escalate? You know, if we're, if we're using machines and we're not actually using human lives or wasting human lives. And we're going to close now with um, the last question that was asked at the end of this evening's discussion, which was, how do you think society will change as we get more and more used to robots being used in different roles within it? How will it affect us as individuals and as a society more generally, Goldie? I think it's, 
it's it's really actually an exciting time to see. And there's if we look back in history, there's been a lot of technologies, right? I mean, starting from the Industrial Revolution all the way to when TVs, you know, came into our households and how people were going to behave, then computers, cell phones, and so on. So I think us as kind of developers and ethicists looking at the applications and really where we want to take this technology. So I think it's an exciting time to see really make sure that we're designing these robots for society, really to help society, right? And I think this is the best time to kind of really discuss and think about the policy so that we can shape this into the future. Barbara. Well, I agree with what Goldie said. I think it's um, absolutely brilliant that we've got all this new technology and uh, it will be very helpful. There are situations where, as we mentioned, it's unsafe not to use a robot and, you know, to put a human in the front line at that stage could be very hazardous if there's toxic waste or something else. So I think it's great that we have the ability to uh, use all this uh, new robotic uh, information that we have. But what we have to do is what we did tonight, which is really discuss it with members of the public and uh, amongst ourselves to see that we have a, a really good ethical way of proceeding. And the very last question posed at the end of the session was, what's the role of robots in sex? So apparently you can buy robots for sex over the internet and the comments surrounding this concerned how it could benefit society by helping to set free those currently trapped in human trafficking. Thanks to Goldie Nijit and Barbara Sahakian. During the evening wine reception, I met with one of the founders of the International Neuroethics Society to find out how this meeting got started. I'm Paul Root Wolpe from Emory University. I'm the uh, Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Bioethics and have many other titles that they give me in lieu of salary increases. The Neuroethics Society was founded by a group of people who got together at Asilomar in about 2004. And we decided that with all of the attention that had been paid to genetics, which had then created this kind of tsunami of ethical writing about genetics, that neuroscience was being neglected, especially because many of the things we were writing about in genetics, and I was doing some of that writing myself, things like genetic privacy, things like human enhancement, were going to be years away in genetics. Because at that time, having my genome, you couldn't say anything meaningful about me. But we're already here in neuroscience. We could already manipulate our brains. We do it all the time with alcohol and other things. So we decided the time was come to start some serious thought about the ethics of neuroscience. So about 12 of us got together, including people like Mike Gazaniga and Steve Hyman and um, Hank Greeley and myself and Martha Farah and Judy Ellis. And we decided that it was time to try to bring people together who were interested in this because there was no one place that people were talking. We were scattered all over the country. So we founded the Neuroethics Society. We made Steve Hyman our first president and now become the International Neuroethics Society and it's really been a, a real success story. And did neuroethics as a discipline actually exist before you founded the society? No. Um, a lot of people were doing neuroethics in the sense that some people were doing ethics of psychiatry but they were working on you know psychotropics and their impact on people or their use in lifestyle. Some people on the neurology side were talking about these kinds of issues on the law side about things like brain imaging in the courtroom. But it wasn't integrated under any rubric. It was just part of bioethics. There was pushback at the beginning with some people saying, oh, we don't need another subfield. And there have been a number of subfields in bioethics, many of which have faded or failed. 
But what happened with neuroethics is because neuroscience has really become in some ways the premier science in the United States around understanding human functioning, neuroethics just grew. Thanks to Paul Root Wolpe. As well as wine at the reception, there were scientific posters. I met Professor James Giorgiani from Georgetown University Medical Center. He had a big presence there. We have 12 of our posters, and I'm very proud of those, not because they're mine, only because these are my students and my fellows. What that really indicates is that they're making a presence in the field, because as young and upcoming students, it's vital that not only their lens and their voice is heard, but this is also a platform, a nexus, for them to interact with the current and next generation of neuroscientists and neuroethicists, and that's exciting. And what kind of work are they presenting at the conference? It really reflects the interest that we have of our neuroethics studies program. And, of course, our program is international, so it's based at Georgetown, but it's internationally collaborative. So we're doing some work with colleagues in Germany, some colleagues in the U.K., and some colleagues in Italy. The majority of our foci are really emphasizing three main themes. We're looking at the neuroethics of deep brain stimulation. We're also trying to plot the field in terms of what are the really important points. And we're looking at this in a pragmatic way. So we want to make sure that we're not just pie in the sky, but we're really trying to plot what are the most important areas and domains that deep brain stimulation will encounter, will affect, and this should become the focus of neuroethical regard, deliberation, and discourse. We're also looking at animal neuroethics and the way we engage animals in research based upon the most contemporary knowledge we have about animal brains, animal minds. And that speaks very, very largely also to the way we not only engage animals in the laboratory, but we engage them in daily life and perhaps even the way we look at other selves, other consciousness. And then the last area that we're dealing with is the whole problem of enhancement. What constitutes treatment, what constitutes enhancement, what constitutes enablement, which is a term that our group has developed, so as to look at the ways you might specifically augment particular tasks of neurological function in very, very discrete silos of performance that are socially sanctioned, like peace officer, or firefighter, or even a soldier or a doctor. And do you think that the area of neuroethics is becoming increasingly popular amongst students? Is there an increase in the number of people that are taking up looking into this area? I think neuroethics is not only a field that is growing by virtue of popularity, but I think the popularity reflects necessity. And that's important because I think our current generation of neuroscience students recognize that you can't extricate the science from the society. We don't live in a social vacuum. And certainly science is influenced by society and influences society. Neuroethics really provides that bridge. It's that nexus between what we do with our brain science and what we do with the meaning of our brain science. In many ways, we see it as the bridge between the synaptic to the social. And then finally, what were your top highlights from the conference today? Well, you know, these conferences, this the International Neuroethics Society, provides a very, very unique forum. It allows some of the up-and-coming students, fellows, and scholars, and young academicians in the field to literally meet with the old guard, if you will, those who have developed the field. The field is really only about 10 to 12 years old. So there are those who were neuroscientists who recognize the need for neuroethics, and they become almost iconographic. So it's a nice opportunity for the up-and-coming generation to rub elbows with those who were the founders of the field. But it's also a great opportunity for the next generation of neuroscientists and neuroethics to provide their voice, their lens, and make their mark. 
on what is going to be a very, very exciting field as we move into neuroethics second generation and second decade. Thanks to James Giordani. And isn't his voice lovely? He told me he's also done voiceover work and we'll be hearing more from his bassy tones later in the series discussing how the American military program DARPA are funding neuroscience research. Well, that's all we have time for in this special episode of Naked Neuroscience. I'm Hannah Critchlow, reporting from the International Neuroethics 2014 meeting, hosted at the AAAS, so the American Association for the Advancements for Science, at Washington, D.C. Thanks to all those who took part in this episode, Goldie Nijet, Barbara Sahakian, Paul Root-Wolpe and James Giordani. In the next episode, we'll be hearing from DARPA, Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, who are funding brain projects and we'll be asking should governments wipe their secret service agents memories clean after they've completed missions and should we implant positive memories into veterans who return from combat join us again for this special naked neuroscience series to open your mind